Okay, everyone, welcome to the Department 12 podcast. I'm Dr. Ben Butina, your host, and I am speaking today with Jeff Dalkey. Jeff, you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. So, Jeff, give us a little bit about your background. Where are you right now? I am. I just finished my third year at the University of Minnesota's IO Psychology program. Um, so I'm taking comps next week. So <laughs> coming up on Ooh. a big milestone, finished with coursework, heading into comps, uh, then going to work on dissertation stuff. Um, prior to being at the University of Minnesota, I got my master's at uh, Minnesota State Mankato, also in IO psychology. And that was a little different from my undergrad because I started out as a piano performance major. And somewhere along the line, I decided, hey, maybe I should do something that would make more money and <laughs> turn to psychology of all places. Wow, that's a really cool story. So you're at University of Minnesota and uh, just about to come up on comps. And I know we all wish you good luck with that. It's uh, really thanks for taking the time out in the week before comps to do this. But uh, you had a really great topic. So I wanted to talk to you about it. And it relates to a topic that most of us are familiar with, which is the the crisis and uh, reproducibility. So, um, or, or replication, I should say. We have a crisis in replication in psychology, or uh, that's what they're calling it in the media anyway, where we have a bunch of really um, famous studies. And when we try to do them again, we're finding we're not getting the same results. And when you look at sort of how we publish things and uh, the file drawer effect and all of that, it kind of makes sense. But you wanted to talk about something a little bit different. So it's not reproducibility, it's what? Well, it is reproducibility. I, I would partition uh, the idea of reproducibility from replication. Replication is this big thing that we're having a crisis about right now in terms of uh, getting the same results over multiple instances of the same methodology. But reproducibility is a distinct topic because it deals with how are you doing your work within a single study? Can If I give you your own data set, can you reproduce your own analyses? Can you get the same results from the same data? And this is a, a workflow problem more so than the, the replication crisis deals with methodological and theory-based substantive problems. Mm -hmm. So what got you interested in this? I got inter interested in this as a master's student because I was working as a research consultant for my university. And I was working with faculty clients who were, some of them were just uncomfortable with doing their own quantitative analyses. So they came to me for statistical help. But along the way, I tried to get them to use, uh, they were mostly using SPSS. So I tried to get them to use the syntax as opposed to just the point and click methods. Mm -hmm. Because I noticed that a lot of people were having issues getting the same results on a consistent basis. When you're using a point and click interface, it's it's hard to remember exactly what you clicked each time you're checking all these boxes. And if you're not recording all the choices that you're making, you yourself cannot reproduce those results. So you couldn't expect somebody else to get the same results, even if they had your data. So that makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to apologize to the audience in advance for my inability to keep these two R words separate. But I thought you had a really good angle on this because, um, you know, when I think about, you know, the research I did for my dissertation, for example, um, if you read my dissertation or if I read it a couple years out, 
and I tried to do the same thing again. There's not really enough information in there, uh, probably not for me to do exactly what I did because, um, and even that's a lot more detailed than what you see written up in a published journal article. Uh, so you have this idea that, okay, if we're doing a better job of documenting what we're doing um, and the workflow, and I'll talk to you about the workflow in a minute, then we should be able to take that exact same data, run the analyses, and get the exact same results, right? Exactly. So tell me about workflow and maybe give me an example of what you mean by that. So I'll give you an example of what I think is a pretty typical workflow for a psychologist or a researcher in general, uh, where you start writing your manuscript. I'll assume that we're talking about an academic manuscript. You're writing something in Word, and then you have to go to some other program and you do your analyses in that program. You've got to pull in your data. You're managing your data, maybe in Excel, and you're importing it into R or SPSS. You do some analyses and you record that somewhere. And then eventually you've got to pull that into your manuscript and you've got to pull in your figures, your tables, your references, all of that stuff has to come together at some point. And that process can be really convoluted. Uh, if you're saving your images in one folder and your uh, tables in another, are you always pulling the right documents from the right places and putting them into the right manuscript file? And a a really uh, salient example of how this can go wrong is when we're naming our files. So I've done this. I think a lot of people have done this at some point where you, you have a file and you're naming it like, oh, manuscript version one, manuscript version two. Then at some point, maybe you're like, oh, versions aren't really working so well. I'll just put a date on there. And then eventually you put final, it's manuscript final. And then you get uh, comments from somebody and now you have to make a final version two <laughs> or then a final final in all caps and you're creating all these different versions of a document and they're all iterations of the same thing but the the names of the files become confusing even for you as the creator to know which one you should be working with and after you send that out for review and you wait three four five months to get around to actually doing a revision, if you're so lucky, lucky to get an R&R, &R, uh, you may have forgotten which file you need. And now you have to look at the last modified dates and, and try to be like a forensic uh, analyst of your own work. So I'm laughing because as soon as you started talking about this, I started thinking about how many folders I have just related to this podcast where I have a file called like, you know, final recording and then final recording underscore one or something like that, <laughs> underscore 1.1, 1. 1, you know, and you look at it and you think, well, this makes perfect sense to me now. But if I was looking at it and I've had to do this, I'm looking at it a couple months later. I was like, I don't really understand why I named them the way I named them. I just I don't have a good enough memory and I don't I'm maybe not thinking exactly the same way. Uh, so having a, a documented workflow would help. So. What does that actually look like for you? I mean, is it a sort of a document naming convention? Is it uh, yeah, just kind of just give us a, an example of one? Uh, and so in, in terms of managing the files, I think it comes down to two things, uh, primarily two things. First is a naming convention. So having a consistent convention for naming files and, and marking them as uh, maybe not even attaching a final label to anything, just use dates. I like to use um, year, month, day to 
at the end of all of my file names so that I can always know which one's the most recent. Um, and then another thing, in addition to having a consistent nomenclature for your files, is having a way of syncing them uh, to the cloud or using some external manager to keep all those versions in sync. And if you're using that type of method effectively, you may not even have to deal with the naming conventions because you're just keeping different versions of the same file. So you may not change the name of your file, but if you're syncing it to like Dropbox or Google Drive or something, it's always like you have a history of that file and you could go back and find uh, a version if you accidentally deleted something and need to get that content again. But So multiple versions sort of subsumed into one file. And if I wanted to look back like, okay, I wanted to see what this data looked like before I cleaned it up uh, using one of these services, I could go back and sort of revert to an earlier version of that same file. And then I don't have 12 different files with different file names on them. Yeah, exactly. And if you have a sync client set up so that it, it automatically pulls stuff from your disk and puts it in your cloud account, that saves you the trouble of having to like manually upload the file. I think that's one of the big hassles. Um, the, if you can eliminate the need to manually upload something to the internet and have a client do it for you, that saves a whole bunch of work and makes it a lot easier to trust that your work is backed up somewhere. Now, when it gets down to the, the actual analysis, uh, I think what you said earlier makes a lot of sense, but some of our listeners are probably really only familiar with kind of the point and click interface and SPSS or you know, a similar piece of software. So how does using syntax, using code, uh, help with this? Using syntax, uh, so having any kind of syntax-based file is a great help in managing um, the versions of your analyses because you can always run that script and get exactly the same results every time. So whether you're using syntax from SPSS or using an exclusively code-based language like R, if you have a file where all of the its instructions really for the computer, if you have all those instructions saved, then you can refer back to them and you can run that those commands and get the exact same thing every time. So that gets uh, beyond the, the issues with the point and click, forgetting which box you checked in the ANOVA menu in SPSS, or uh, forgetting which set of results that you interpreted when you get two sets of results and you're like, oh, well, did I assume equal variances or not? Mm -hmm. Having some way of recording that and making a comment in your code for yourself to refer to back to is a big part of reproducibility. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a great advantage to syntax-based, uh, and, and that intimidates a lot of people. And at some point in the future, I'm going to do kind of a an extravaganza for R. Um because I think that's we're just kind of catching up with R uh, in the IO site community because SPSS is what most of us learn in graduate school and we kind of get stuck in a rut with that. But uh, anybody, I think, that's ever tried to rerun an analysis in that graphical user interface, the, the number of checkboxes and um, options available, it just quickly gets overwhelming trying to remember all that. Uh, code is harder to learn at first. But once you do that, it puts less stress of on, you know, your working memory of trying to re remember all the boxes that you checked and that kind of thing. Um, now, do you tie this all together in some way? So do you document like step by step? Here's what I did in a document somewhere or, or how, do, how do you look at that problem? Um, 
So it depends on which project I'm talking about. Some projects, I keep my code and my manuscript separate. So I'm going to warm up to my big idea of having integrated analyses and documents in one step. Uh, but for starters, I have a an R script where I have comments saying, like, this is what I'm doing here and this is why. And then my code is below that. And then... I have each part of my analysis scripted out both in terms of the code and the comments that go along with it so that uh, months or years down the line, if I refer back to it, I can see exactly what I did and why. I can, if I record my rationale, it makes it easier to to understand the why of it. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, you're focusing on um, the individual researcher being able to go back um in, you know, maybe a year ago and some analysis I was doing and be able to reproduce exactly what I did. But one of the sort of extensions I see to this is, uh, you know, we're supposed to be doing science. It's supposed to be generative. Um, presumably, I should be able to write code and comment it in such a way that somebody else could take my data, run that same analysis and get the same result. And, you know, if they wanted to, uh, you know, check my data based on something they saw in a published journal article, I could send them that code with it commented out. And assuming, you know, they have the skill set to understand our code, they could know uh, what I did. And if they were inclined to, you know, maybe reproduce that study or to extend it in some way, they can really build off of what I've done rather than just looking at a journal article where a lot of that detail is obscured and trying to reproduce the way I was thinking and the way I was running things. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. And uh, kind of building on that point, I think that having a script-based analysis is good, not only for responding to inquiries from readers, but for having something prepared as a technical appendix, that uh, there are some journals that are moving toward mandatory reporting of your data set and your scripts. So, and I, I think we're going to see that trend continue, that this is only going to become a more normative thing. So having well-documented analyses that you could provide as an online supplement to your published work, along with the data that go with it, that's, that's a really important part of reproducibility. And it's more than just, like you said, you, you as your own person being able to understand your own work, but how can you communicate that effectively to others? Yeah, and so much of what we do uh, is sort of like we're trying to we're trying to add on technology and trying to bolt it onto an old-fashioned way of doing things. And I think if we were to just start now, if we weren't if we didn't have the whole, you know, 100 plus year history of publishing in print journals and, and things like that. If we just said, "Okay, Given the technology that we have now, how would we set up the whole peer review process? Um, it's kind of crazy to think that we would ever come up with anything like what we have, <laughs> which is that the finished product is this article in a journal somewhere that gets printed out on paper. And then, you know, maybe you get access to it because you have a subscription at your university library or what have you. And then if you want to know more about it, you reach out to the researcher and depend on his or her good faith. Uh, and to respond and provide you data and things like that. But what's encouraging to me is we, we do seem to be moving in the right direction with, you know, pre-registering hypotheses and studies, uh, you know, archiving data in, in places that are publicly accessible and 
making the peer review process really more of a peer review process and less of a, um, you know, you're getting all the way to the end of the process before anybody else sets their eyeballs on it. Yeah. And I, and I think we're moving beyond the mindset of the peer review process being only the, the reviewers, the formal reviewers and thinking about readers as your peers and they're evaluating your work when it's published and how are they going to do that if they, if there are opaque method sections or unclear uh, protocols and making all that transparent makes your research more interpretable and trustworthy from readers down the line. Very cool. So I think you made a very compelling case. I think uh, hopefully uh, readers who are, or listeners who are listening to this episode will take this advice to heart, uh, start documenting, uh, and especially uh, those of you out there who are maybe in a, a more traditional program where you're using SPSS, maybe think about cracking open that syntax. I know it's a little intimidating at first, but it's a lot like anything else in statistics. It's intimidating until you realize how powerful it is and what it can do for you uh, and then learn it. And uh, even if you have to teach yourself a little bit on the side, there's certainly a lot of resources out there to do that. So, Jeff, I want to thank you very much for being on the show and I look forward to having you back again. Well, thank you very much for having me.